and uh, good to have you here on this Tuesday night. Good to see you. Hope you have had a great day, and I hope that this this is the icing on the cake for you tonight. Good-looking Tuesday night crowd. I'm so glad that you made it. I hope you had a better day today than two brothers I heard about recently. They got together, and they did a get-rich-quick scheme, and they said, let's introduce bungee jumping in Mexico. So they went down across the border, and they built a huge tower and started advertising tickets, and nobody would buy one because they didn't know what it was. So finally, one of the brothers said, well, we need to demonstrate it. So he tied himself up, and he jumped off, and he came back up. He was covered with cuts. He went down again. This time, he came back up. He's covered with blood. His brother reached out, pulled him back on the tower, and said, what in the world's going on? What's the deal here? He said, I don't know, but what in the world's a piñata? I hope today you don't feel like a piñata. And life has a way of sometimes beating us around a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, but good to have you here tonight. Now, some of you are not laughing. That scares me. And uh, uh, But uh, good to have you here tonight. And happy Tuesday. That really bright object in the sky you saw today is the sun. I know you probably forgot what it looks like. And, uh, you know, I'm, I kind of, and when I'm preaching and talking, I kind of veer to this side because there are more people over here. But that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate you too, okay? And uh, but good to have all of you here tonight. We are memorizing a verse. It goes like this, Psalm 119.97. Oh. Very good, very good. Oh, that word is emotional. David is emotional. Christians, there's nothing wrong with emotion. We don't make decisions by our emotions, but emotions always follow when our hearts are right with the Lord. And David is right with the Lord, and he's saying, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119.97. David had a major case of Bible on the brain. And he loved to think about the Word of God. He loved to dwell on it. And I hope you do too. I hope the Word of God is becoming more and more important to you uh, as you uh, grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that here in just a few moments. But let's stand together, could we please? Let's stand together and do this memory verse. Uh, for those of you that might be interested, my dad is stable. Uh, he's still in the hospital. He has pneumonia, and so he's taking antibiotics, and, uh, but he's doing well. So thank you for those of you that were concerned about that. Are you ready? All right, here we go. On your marks. How many of you? How many of you, I know I asked this on Sunday, but I'm really concerned tonight. How many of you would rather be here tonight than in prison? Would you raise your hand, please? All right, I'm, I'm looking to see if there are no hands. Okay, good, great, I'm, I'm relieved. And uh, are you ready? Here we go. Would you look at the people around you? Just look at them and just say, wow, you have nice teeth. Some of you do. Some of you have very nice teeth. All right, good. Here we go. On your marks, get set, go. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97. And that word law, believers, is euphemistic. It represents the word of God. The word of God is, is God's law to us. And so that's what David's talking about there. Let's do it again for practice. You ready? And by the way, I need to warn you that tomorrow night there will be cameras hidden all over the place that uh, 
we'll be recording you and we're going to post it on Facebook to, to, see, you know, to see how well you did. And so, uh, let me just, so this is your last night to, your last night to practice. Okay. Here we go. On your marks, get set, go. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97. How many of you tonight, would you raise your hand? How many of you tonight wore a Nike swoosh? Would you raise your hand, please? Thank you so much. Even you, good. How'd you know about it? Somebody, Dan told you. Good for him. And then Dan didn't even wear one. And, uh, uh, but if you wore a swoosh tonight, thank you so much. And uh, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, it'll make sense here in just a few moments. You be patient. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for answering my prayer and I'm sure the prayer of others for a good crowd tonight. Thank you for burdening your people to be here. Lord, we've got some visitors. Thank you for them. Lord, we've got some people here tonight that have been here for every single service. Oh, God, thank you for them. And Lord, I do pray tonight that you would help me. Lord, I do pray that I will not give the impression that I'm better than anybody in this room. I am not. I am a simple sinner saved by grace. Lord, I'm nothing more than a dying man standing in front of dying people. But God, thank you for this privilege you've given to me to say, thus saith the Lord. God, I pray for this congregation tonight. Lord, thank you for the discipline that they used to be here. Lord, many of them have worked all day, and no doubt they're somewhat tired. But God, thank you for their discipline and their longing to be here, the attitude of anticipation they may have. God, I pray that you'd help them to get out of this message and this passage tonight what you would want them to get. Lord, I pray this all in thy name tonight because I know it's your will. Amen. You may be seated. Well... What I want to do tonight, friends, is I would like to kind of continue what I started last night. And in order to do this properly, we need to review just a little bit. And folks, I never, ever hesitate to repeat or review. I have an undergrad degree in education. And I remember Dr. Fremont telling us that the number one tool in education, and Sunday school teachers, this is so good for you, the number one tool in education is review, review, Review. That's what Peter means when he wrote in Second Peter chapter 1. He said, stir them up, talking about you, stir them up by putting them in remembrance of these things, though they know them and have been established in the present truth. I'm quoting Second Peter chapter 1 verse 12. Peter is saying there, keep reminding my people of what they already know. Why is that? Because we have a tendency to forget. And the more we review something, the more it's settled in our hearts, the bigger that file, if you will, becomes in your mind when that subject is hit over and over again. So, friends, it's never, never a bad thing to review. So let me do that. Remember what we did last night? We established the fact that God wants us to grow. And we need the church. We need a pastor because that kind of helps in our growth. It's part of our diet. Now, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven because of church. But God said, now that you're saved, now that you've been born again, I want a church. I want you to subject yourself and put yourself under the authority of the pastor because it's part of your diet. It's healthy. It's good for us. 
and it helps our growth. And we looked last night at Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about the fact that we need to grow up. Remember, I said the title of this series would be, Oh, Grow Up. Grow up. God wants you to grow. None of us should be satisfied with how big we are spiritually. And I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. So we established the fact that God wants us to grow. I then took you to a very dynamic passage that we'll return to tonight. This passage is a picture. Ladies and gentlemen, it's kind of interesting. Would you complete a sentence for me? A picture is worth a thousand words. And your Bible is full of pictures. We call them parables. But the Bible's full of them. Jesus is not the only one that used parables. And we started looking at a parable last night about growth. And you see that parable in 1 John chapter 2. Would you turn that with me again here tonight? 1 John chapter 2. And look with me, if you would, please, at verse 12. And while you're turning there, let me set the stage tonight. People, when I was a sophomore in high school, I turned 16. And I am not exaggerating when I tell you that there in Seattle where I lived, as a sophomore in high school, I was four feet, 11 inches tall. I was short. I was probably, I went to a large public high school. I was probably the shortest 10th grader, 10th grade guy in the entire school. And my friends picked on me mercilessly. They were always trying to set me up with girls, and they were, they were always picking on me, and I became very, very self-conscious about my height. Well, like any normal, and I'm not saying I'm normal, but like any normal 10th grader as 16-year-old, I wanted to drive. And I was the oldest of three boys, and so my parents wanted me to drive because I could help with their chauffeur responsibilities. So they were very interested in my learning how to drive. And so when I turned 16, I got my learner's permit there in Washington, and, 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 and immediately my dad started to teach me how to drive. Now, my dad had, you men will enjoy this, maybe some of you women too, but my dad had two cars. He had a beautiful, gorgeous Oldsmobile 98, not the Delta 88, which was more popular. He had a 98, which was bigger and fancier and more expensive. It was used. He never bought a new car in his life. But it was a used car, but it had power everything, power seats, power windows before all of that was standard in most cars. And I mean, it was a gorgeous car, but no son of my dad, who was a farmer when he grew up, was going to learn how to drive on a wimpy, girly, automatic transmission. My dad's second car, and some of you men will drool, but please understand this is back in 1970. It was not an antique then. But my dad's second car was a 1954 Chevy. Now, folks, if you want to know what that looks like, go home, rip out your bathtub, turn it upside down, you've got a 54 Chevy. It was a massive round tank. And any son of my dad was going to learn how to drive on a standard transmission. It had what they call three at the knee. My dad immediately took me to a back road there in Seattle, and I learned, started learning how to do the clutch and the standard transmission. My theme song became, if you can't find them, grind them. And I started working that. But folks, what I want you to know tonight is that when I stood, when I sat down behind that steering wheel for the first time, at four feet, 11 inches tall, I could barely see over the dash. But I'm a fighter. And I, every time, every time we went somewhere, Dad, can I drive? Mom, can I drive? Dad, can I drive? I drove them nuts, but they were so patient. And I learned, and I got good with that 54 Chevy. 
Well, when it came time for me to take my driver's license test, my dad let me use the Oldsmobile, and I passed it lickety-split, and I started driving by myself. When I would take the car, it was almost always the 54 Chevy. A lot of protection. It was like a tank and a teenage boy. That's, that's probably good. Well, I noticed that when I would pull up to a busy intersection, and I would pull through that intersection when the light turned green, I noticed people staring. Look, there goes a car with no driver. <laughs> now, I've already told you I was very self-conscious about my height. And that really, as you can understand, I'm sure, really bothered me. Stop staring at me. I got the bright idea that Seattle had a nice, thick, probably like you have here in Sacramento, had a nice, thick business phone book, paperback. And I got the bright idea that if I sat on that paperback phone book, it made me look normal. And so whenever I drove that 54 Chevy, I swore my parents to secrecy. But whenever I drove that Chevy, I always sat on a phone book for about the first year or two that I became a driver. I was very self-conscious. Can you understand that? Ladies and gentlemen, what a picture of you. God wants every one of you believers to be very self-conscious about your height, not physically, but spiritually. That's what this passage is all about. Every one of you ought to be asking yourself, where, how big am I? Lord, am I, am I growing? Every one of us ought to be very, not so that we can show off, but the bigger we get, people, and I hope you can understand this, the bigger we get, the more useful we are for the Lord. And if you're a real believer, you want to be useful. You don't want to be useless. And 2 Peter chapter 1 says we can get to the point in our Christianity where we're no more good for God than somebody unsaved. You don't want that. I don't want that. Not if you're a real Christian. And so the bigger we get spiritually, the more useful we are in the hands of God. I was doing a revival in Michigan a number of years ago, and it was a suburb of Detroit. And on Tuesday, the pastor of the church and I were invited over to a retired couple's house for lunch. This, this retired man had worked for General Motors for decades, and he had retired with a very handsome pension. And they, in their retirement, bought property way out in the country and built this gorgeous two-story log home made out of Canadian cedar. It was gorgeous. Had a wraparound porch, and we went out there, and we went into the house. It was a, a large house, so like I said, two-story, kind of had a balcony, and it's just beautiful. And we were, we were given a tour of the house, and we went into the kitchen, and there were, there were four trees, one here, and one here, and one here, and one here, just kind of holding up the ceiling above the kitchen, and, and just beautiful, real thick Canadian, Canadian cedar, and, and all treated and, and varnished and what have you. And, but I noticed that this tree over here had all kinds of notches in it where somebody had carved. And next to those notches was writing. And I asked the lady of the house, I said, what, what's this all about? And she said, well, that is a tree, he said, she said, that my grandkids adore because every year on their birthday, they get to walk up to that tree and we measure how high they are. We put a notch there and we write their initials and, the day, and their birth date next to that notch. And she said, my grandkids, every time they come over, they go to that tree and they find out if, they, if they've gotten any bigger than their notch that they were able to put there on their birthday. They were fascinated by that. I wonder if Faith Baptist Temple 
had a spiritual tree in the corner where every year your notch would be carved into it spiritually. Is it getting bigger? And my friends, you ought to be very self-conscious about that because God wants you to be. Could I prove my point? Let's go to the picture. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. And remember what we did last night? Let, let, let me just read the passage to you, okay? Follow, follow as I read. Verse number 12. John says, I write. And remember, people, he's going to say, I write, and I've written six times. When somebody writes something, they're assuming that you're going to read. Folks, in order to grow spiritually, you've got to know how to read the Bible. You've got to learn the Bible, but not just learn the Bible, but once you learn it, you then live it. The Bible always causes growth if you obey it. So let's read on. He says in verse 12, I write unto you little children. And remember that word little children there in the Greek is the word technon, and it just means offspring. I'm a child. I'm a child of my parents. Even though I'm an old man, I'm still a child. You are too. We're all children. When we got saved, we became children of God. And that's what this is referring to. And how do you know you're a child of God? Well, this verse very beautifully states how you know. When he goes on and he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. When you got saved, if indeed you have, when you got saved, you got saved because you recognized that you were a sinner, you deserve hell, and there was only one person that could forgive you, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and you repented of your sin, and you asked him to be your savior, to forgive you of your sin, and only then and only can that save somebody. And that happened to you. If indeed you're a real Christian tonight, you can think of a time in your life where you recognize that I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. Lord, would you please forgive me and save me from the penalty of my sin? Could I get an amen? That's what that verse is talking about. And when that happened, you became a child of God. You were not naturally born a child of God. You were born an enemy of God. Even though you didn't maybe even feel like you were, you still were. And when you got saved, God said, you are now part of my family. You're my offspring. What a privilege. But then we go to verse number 13 where he says, I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. What an interesting statement. And he's going to repeat that same thing in verse 14. But let's, go, let's read 13. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome. And that word overcome there is the word Nike. And folks, that's why you look around you and you see people wearing the swoosh because nobody on the face of this planet has more of a right to wear a Nike swoosh than a Christian. Because when you start growing, you become very, very concerned with overcoming. The word Nike means victory. Victory over what? Well, he, he tells you. Let, let's watch this, okay? He says um, there at the end of verse 13, because ye have overcome the wicked one. Who's the wicked one? That's the devil. What does the devil want you to do? Sin. He can't rob you of your salvation. He can't send you to hell. He can't send you to heaven, but he sure can make it difficult. He wants you to sin. Ladies, he wants you to sin. Men, he wants you to sin. Young people, he wants you to sin. And you want to overcome that if you're saved. And then you, then you have a, a phrase here that's kind of interesting. I write unto you little children. That's a different word than verse 12. The word little children there in verse number 13 is the same word that we get a very funny-sounding word in English. When I used to travel, I used to be the staff evangelist for Bob Jones University. 
I used to get into a lot of Christian schools and stand in front of people and promote. And, and one of the most popular majors among girls, this is years ago, was a major that they offered called piano pedagogy. Pedagogy. What a funny word. The word pedagogy comes from pedagogue. The word pedagogue simply means teaching. Teaching. The word here for little children literally means little teaching ones. All of you would agree, wouldn't you? Children have to be taught. They have to be taught to look both ways. They have to be taught that that stove is hot. They have to be taught that the dog bites. They are not naturally born with that discernment. They have to be taught. And what this is telling you is that that is where all of us started when we got saved. When you got saved, you started as a little teaching one. You had to be taught scriptural truth. You had to be taught discernment. You had to be taught character. And that's what he's talking about. So he says there at the end of verse 13, I write unto you little children because ye have known the Father. Children are all about relationships. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Verse 14, I have written unto you fathers. This is an exact repeat of the beginning of verse 13. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, and we get a little more information here about young men. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong. And what makes them strong? And the word of the Lord abideth in you, and ye have overcome, there's that word Nike again, overcome the wicked one. So friends, as I said last night, you as a Christian must go to a spiritual tree, if you will, and your notch is going to fall somewhere in these three levels. All of us, nobody excluded. When you got saved, you started out as a little child. But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible and it's being preached in your church always takes you in the direction of growth. The Bible always endeavors to grow you. The Bible always endeavors to take you towards the direction of being a father-type Christian. It is God's will for every woman here, every man here, to eventually become a father-type Christian. But let me repeat what I said last night. This graph that God has given you, this is a picture. Folks, I didn't make it up. It's straight from heaven. These are the three levels that God has given you. And this picture is a picture that God wants you to understand. And it is a picture that helps us to understand my Christian growth. And you must identify with one of these three levels. But this picture, folks, has nothing to do with how old you are. I have met retirees, as I said last night. I've met retirees that are very childlike in their faith. I've met young men, young women, who are very almost fatherlike in their faith. It has nothing to do with chronological age. It also has nothing to do with how much God loves you. God loves children spiritually as much as he loves fathers spiritually. They're all equal in his eyes. So it has nothing to do with how much God... It also has nothing to do with what kind of office and what kind of responsibility you have. I have met deacons who are very childish in their faith. I have met people that have absolutely no responsibility, no office, especially widows that are very fatherlike in their faith. It has nothing to do with what you're doing for the church. It has nothing to do with your age. It has nothing to do with your education. It has everything to do with what you're personally doing with the Word of God. Is it affecting the way you live? And so, friends, I repeat, 
going from child to father is always the direction that God wants you to go with his word and he uses the church and the preaching of it to help you grow. You need this as part of your diet. It's not the only thing in your diet, but it is part of your diet. And you, you, you find somebody, you find a Christian who starts missing church and I guarantee you, you're looking at a Christian, they're sick. There's something wrong. There's something unhealthy spiritually. You protect your church attendance. God wants you here every time the doors are open. Could I get an amen? That was pretty weak. All right, so we talk about little children. And what is characteristic? The Bible says here, little children are who have known the Father. They're little children, people, are all about, and I know all of you know this, but let's just kind of refresh our memories. Little children are all about their relationship with mommy and daddy. They could care less about their brothers and sisters. They could care less about you. They're all about mom and dad. It's kind of fun. I've been in crowds before. Where a little kid, and this happened not long ago, where a little kid, I was in a, in a big group at a church, and, and a little kid came up and grabbed me around the knee. And I looked down, and he looked up and realized his real dad was bald. This bald head was not his dad. And he immediately was shocked, and he immediately tried to find his dad. Little children are all about mommy and daddy. Why? Because mommy and daddy give them what they want. Food, protection, shelter. They're all about mom and dad, especially mom. I disagree. I really disagree with that statement that's so popular that man's best friend is a dog. That is so not true. Man's best friend is mom. They're all about mom. They're all about that relationship. And isn't it interesting, friends, when somebody gets saved, they're all about he loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. It's all about me. And everything about their faith, everything about their Christianity is all self-focused. And they immediately go to a church and, and they're immediately concerned with whether or not the pastor was friendly with them and whether or not other people were friendly to them and what's in it for me and did I get anything out of the service today? It's, it's all about me. It's all about me. And folks, we don't mind that, do we? We don't mind that at all. We're just thankful you're here. We like children. We want children. But people, when you've been saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and you're still like that, ah, you're a freak. You're weird. Because the Bible always takes you to the next step, and the next step is young men. And I had Lucas last night come and stand next to me, a 12-year-old, and I told you that that's what John has in mind because John is Jewish. And in a Jewish community, a young man becomes a young man when he celebrates his bar mitzvah at the age of 12. That would have been true in Bible times. And a 12-year-old in Bible times would have had his occupation picked out for him. He had his wife usually picked out for him. And he has become officially a man. But what is characteristic about that age? Oh, people, could I remind you that a teenager, especially a guy, it's kind of hard for girls to understand this, we are so incredibly competitive. And we never grow out of that, do we, man? We want the fastest car out there. We want the fastest motorcycle. We want to, we want to, we want to have the biggest muscle. We never grow out of that. We're all about victory. And people, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way God made us. We're all about competition and we want to win. 
And may I tell you tonight, Christians, that when you start growing spiritually, you become very, very competitive. And what are you competing against? You're competing against the wicked one. And when you see sin in the world, it makes you mad. And when you see sin getting its way in somebody in your church, it makes you mad. You want to attack hell with a snowball. I mean, let's get there with a squirt gun. You're, you're just absolutely all about, I want to win. As a evangelist, I often get invited to preach for a, a teen activity called the war. Now, in some areas, they're worried about that being politically incorrect, so they call it, you know, intense week or, you know, some other banal name. But anyway, let me tell you what happens in the war. In fact, I'm going to be doing one this coming June in New York. And what they do is it's like having a revival with teenagers. And what the, what the youth pastor or the youth leaders will do is that on Monday night, they divide the youth group into two teams. And they stay in those teams all week, every night. You might have Navy versus Army, Coke versus Pepsi, Dunkin' Donuts versus Krispy Kreme. I did one one time where it was blue versus red. Boring. But uh, you, you, have, you have two teams, and, 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 uh, and, the, and you stay on that team all week. And if you bring a visitor, you get points for your team, and that visitor is automatically on your team. So the more visitors you bring, the stronger your team gets. And they come up with some really wild games that would scare you people. But when you're the age of, when you're the age of a teenager, especially a guy, when it comes to competition, the more blood, the more fun. And they come up with games like spoke tackle, which is kind of a really, really violent form of tag, where tackling and killing is legal. I mean, and, and you, uh, I mean, they come up with some wild, wild games. It's fun to watch, and teenage, especially guys, love it. But it's, what's interesting, people, is that when you're around them, before the games start on that given evening, you'll hear this. Hey. Loser. You're going down. That's the way they talk. They really do. They're Christians. You're going down, loser. You want to see a gun show? Check it out. And they're wearing cleats. And they got that black grease under their eyes. They're ready to take it on. And yeah, oh boy, oh boy, do they trash talk. You know why? They're competitive. Isn't it fun to be around Christians? who trash talk the devil. I hate, I hate the wrong kind of music. I hate pornography. I want to win. And folks, when you're around young men spiritually, when you're around this kind of Christian that's growing to a young man's stage, which I hope is all of you at least, if not more, you know what you're going to hear? Hey, pastor, I live next to a Mormon. How can I win them? How can I win them? Hey, pastor, I, 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 I'm, I'm working with a bunch of Catholics. Uh, pastor, how can I win? I want to win. And folks, please understand that when you start growing, are you connecting the dots? When you start growing spiritually, you start getting concerned with, I want to win. I want to win for heaven. I want to do stuff that counts for eternity. I want to win people to Christ. I want to fight sin. I want to quell sin in our congregation. I want us to have victory. I want us to be Nike. I want to win. Can I get an amen? We're all about winning. Folks, that is part 
of growing up. Now, you show me a Christian that's all about my life. If I want to drink it, I'm going to drink it. If I want to wear it, I'm going to wear it. If I want to post it, I'm going to post it. If I want to talk like that, I'm going to talk like that. If I want to watch it, I'm going to watch it. If I want to go to that inner side, I'm going to go to that inner side. You know what you're listening to? A child. A child. A freak. That is not what God wants. He wants us to grow. And folks, do you understand? That is always the direction the Bible takes you. God wants you to grow. And when you become a young man, you get very, very touchy, people. I like what one preacher said years ago that I heard. He said, one of the ways you know you're growing is you get more and more touchy about your sin. You hate it. You hate it. I despise it. And folks, I am not perfect. Well, please understand, I, I sin. Oh, yeah, just like you, I sin. But you know what? The, the closer I get to God, the more I grow spiritually, the more it bugs me. I, I'm kind of getting like the Apostle Paul who said in Romans, who will deliver me from this curse called flesh? And may I remind you people tonight that your body, this thing that you can pinch, what I'm looking at, will always fight you spiritually. Always. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. Your body will always fight you spiritually. I was saying this one time in a church in Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, there are Christians there, believe it or not. And uh, it was a friend day. And I was preaching this, 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 this principle of, of hating the flesh. And there was a young mom sitting in the front row about here next to Peggy. And uh, she was a visitor. And she immediately spoke up. I mean, right in the middle of the service, she said, Wait a minute, preacher. I like my body. I've spent a lot of money on it. I've had some surgery. That was kind of weird. The church was very, very quiet. I simply said, I think I handled it very well. I think you'll agree. I said, well, ma'am, see the pastor afterwards, and he'll help you with that. That's what it's called deflection. But people, my point is this. You're in a fight, and the biggest enemy you've got is you. And the devil, the wicked one, would love for you to love your flesh, to coddle it. Do you know what that word means? To baby it, to just absolutely live for the flesh. Do you know any Christians like that? I sure do. Yeah, I've just described, I think, 90% of Christianity in America. If I like that music, I'm going to listen. I don't care. No, people, fight. Grow. Learn how to fight, hate sin, getting closer to the Lord. But people, please understand, young man is not the end of all ends. There's still a whole nother level, and this fascinates me. Fathers. Did you see what it said there? Would you look again at verse number 13? Fathers. Verse 13, he says the same thing in verse 14, so I'll just read 13. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him, that is from the beginning. Let me tell you what that means. It's a fascinating statement. And folks, what John is describing is a phenomenon that I think few Christians really experience. But you can get to the point in your Christianity where you have grown so much that you become more and more enamored. You know what that word means? More and more 
fascinated, more and more obsessed with who he is. I want to know him, like Paul said in Philippians 3, that I may know him. Paul's an old man when he wrote that. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his image in his death. Paul was absolutely fascinated, people, with who God is. Are you? He, he hated his flesh. He wanted to know God. He gave us one of the most fascinating verses, I think, personally, in all the Bible. It's found that you don't need to turn there. I'll give it to you by memory, but it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, and Paul said this. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, which is a fancy King James way of saying, I've got a hard choice. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm not quite sure what to do here. You know, kind of frustrated. He says, for I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire. That word desire, people, is translated elsewhere in your Bible for the word lust. Paul is about to share with you a lust. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire, having a lust, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Far better than what? <clears throat> this. This flesh. Far better. Folks, heaven is going to be so wonderful, and God is so spectacular, it's beyond your human comprehension. And Paul tasted that, and he had a desire. I like to tell people kind of tongue-in-cheek that Paul was suicidal. He wanted out of here. He was really having a hard time staying. I want out of here. And what fascinates me about that is Paul had already been to heaven. He'd already been there. He tells you about that in 2 Corinthians. He was not allowed to talk about it much, but he'd been there. He tells you that in 2 Corinthians. He could not wait to get out of here. He was absolutely fascinated with God and who he is. My friends, that's what God wants from you. Where you get to a level where you are so much having victory over sin, you're becoming so godly that you're absolutely fascinated and overwhelmed with who he is. I want to know him better. People, why does, why does John use fathers? Did you have a good father growing up? Did you have a good father? I sure did. Let me tell you what a good father's like. Never once in the entire years that I lived with my dad, that's 18 years, never once did I ever hear my dad say anything about what he wanted. I never heard my dad say, well, that'd be nice for my birthday, or I'd, I'd like that for Christmas. I never heard my dad, not that there's anything wrong with that, because I do it all the time, but I never heard my dad, never heard my dad say, well, man, I'd like to have little, My dad was always so possessed with providing for his family. My friends, you know what that means? His focus was on others. His focus was on others. That's what a good father's always about. They're always about protecting their family, protecting others, and it's the father's people, it's the fathers in this congregation, if there are any, it's the fathers that make the great deacons, the great pastors, the great Sunday school teachers, the great choir members, the great ushers. Their focus is always on others. They don't come to church all worried about, is anybody going to be friendly to me? That's so not a father. A father comes into a congregation like that, and they immediately get involved in your life. Do you do that? 
You come in here, folks, you let that get a hold of your heart. You walk in those double doors back there, and you're going to be a little more quick to extend a hand and get into people's life and not be stuck up like so many Christians. Fathers are all about others. They're all about protecting others. They're all about providing for others. That's the kind of Christian that God can greatly use. We call that love. That's what love is. Love is me giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. Folks, you're all about living for others. A father is so like that. Now, what I'd like to do tonight in closing is I want to take you to a passage that was written by a father. What a fascinating passage it is. Written by a man who knows he's about to die. He has spent a lifetime just loving the Lord and serving the Lord and having great victories in his life. Let me show it to you. You'll find it in Psalm 145. Would you turn that with me, please, in closing tonight? Psalm 145. As you're turning there, let me tell you about Psalm. The Psalms was a hymn book. The Jews would have sung it. They had, a, they had this entire book memorized, most of them did. And in Psalm 145, you have what the Jews considered the crown jewel of all the Psalms. Psalm 145 is written by a man, you probably have heard of him before, by the name of King David. And David's an old man when he pens Psalm 145. He has walked with the Lord. The Bible said he was a man after God's own heart. And as an old man, the Jews had a tradition that when you would memorize Psalm 145, you were preparing yourself for heaven. It is the crown jewel of all the Psalms, the Jews said. In fact, when a Levite, when a priest was on duty, they would serve two weeks a year. And when they were on duty, they would say this Psalm every morning and every night. It's all about God. And would you watch this, people? Here's a father, an old man. He's going to be dead within years. And in Psalm 145, I just want to hit the first two verses, that's all. I'd love to preach the whole chapter, but, but time would not permit. Watch this, would you please? Watch this, this is so fascinating. I, and he's going to say I five times, people. So he's giving you his heart. He's showing you his heart. And what does he say? I will extol thee, my God, oh, next word out loud. You know what's interesting about that? There's a king recognizing who the real king is. Isn't that rich? There's a king recognizing who the real king is. But let me read that again. I will, I will extol thee, my God, O king, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. What I want you to circle in your Bible, if you would like, is that word extol. Fathers are all about extolling. You know what the word extol means? Let me illustrate extol. Let me tell you what it means. It's kind of a funny word that we, we don't really use much in our English. Many years ago, I was a, an assistant pastor of a very large church in Chicago. And when I got there, they wanted me to be what was called a singles pastor. I had been a youth pastor for years. But this large church had never had anybody to kind of reach a segment, an element of society that's one of the fastest growing elements in our society called single adults who have graduated from college and they haven't married yet and, and Americans are getting married later and later. 
And so you had this huge, huge group within that church of single adults, young professionals that had not married. I became their pastor, almost like a youth pastor. What was interesting, this has nothing to do with my message tonight, but let me tell you about that ministry. We called them the Roaring Twenties. And they were fun. We had so much fun. We went on missions trips. They were fun. But every single issue I ever had to confront as a youth pastor, I had to confront with those singles. I used to tell them that they were nothing more than a youth group with money. But they were fun. They were so fun. But we took a missions trip one time where we went to a small church in Phoenix in Gilbert. And we conducted at the same time simultaneously VBS, Vacation Bible School for Children, while doing also a teen war. We split. We, there were about 20, 15 of us that went. We, we, were, we split up into two teams. Some of us worked with the teenagers and some of us worked with the children. We did that for a week at this church. It was a phenomenal week. We had so much fun. And there was so much growth that happened. When you serve like that, you really grow. At the end of the week, I rewarded them. And they knew this up front. They had taken enough vacation time at their places of employment. I rewarded them by taking them to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I had never been there. Most of that group from Chicago had never been there. My wife had. I think she was the only one in the group that had ever been there before. Now, people, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you have. Some of you are nodding your head. Some of you perhaps have not. Pictures don't do it justice. Never does it do it justice. And let me tell you what happened. We rented a big 15-passenger van, and we drove from Phoenix up there. I think it's about a two-hour drive, if I remember correctly. And, and we got there, and when you get close to the Grand Canyon, you can't see it. You can't see it. You're kind of surrounded by trees, and it's flat, and you're right on the road, and, and they purposely leave those trees up there so you can't see it because you'd probably drive off the road. And so you, you get there, and you pull into the parking lot that says, you are now at the Grand Canyon, but you can't see it. So we got out of the car, you know, and got our, locked everything up, you know, and we started walking down the trail through the trees, and all of a sudden, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but all of a sudden, you walk out of the trees, and boom, there it is. And it is so vast, it is so gorgeous, it is literally breathtaking. <gasps> wow. And all those flatlanders from Chicago, walked to the rim of the Grand Canyon, and they were spellbound. They were silent. Wow. You just kind of soak it in, if that's even possible. It, it, for people, it is so beautiful. And may I remind you, the Bible tells you that creation is a finger pointing to God. God's going to hold the unsaved world accountable by just creation alone. There had to be a designer. But there we stood. There we stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon. <gasps> wow. And after about a half hour or so, they came to me and they said, Pastor Mike, that's what they used to call me, Pastor Mike, could we sing How Great Thou Art? And there we stood. Oh, there are all kinds of unsaved people around us. We didn't care. They, they had nice voices, too. We had done a lot of special music as a choir. They were good singers. Not me, but they were good. And we stood there at the rim, and we sang, How Great Thou Art, and we kind of had a singspiration. You know why? Here's why, people. We were moved. Do you understand that? We were moved. And that is exactly, Christians, what the word extol means. 
It means to be so moved that you can't help but just gush forth praise to an almighty God. That doesn't come from children. Do you understand me? That doesn't come from children. That comes from mature saints. Do you ever get to the point in your life, lady, have you ever been to the point in your life, sir, where you were just so thankful for what he has done called salvation, called new life, new nature, a living word of God that you now appreciate, you now love, you now understand because he's given you the spirit of enlightenment, Ephesians 1 says. You've got it, Christian. You've got it. So good. And the icing on the cake is it's going to get better. For most, it's going to get way worse. Not you. You're Christians. And the more you chew on that, and the more you understand the Word of God and live it, the more you become a gusher. Some of the weirdest sounds you'll ever hear in your life, and you're never going to hear them. I guarantee you. But some of the weirdest sounds you'll ever hear in your life is me on my motorcycle with no helmet on a nice warm spring evening feeling the wind through my hair riding down the road just so thankful for what God has done in my life. Just kind of get out there in the open air. It's kind of nature. Of course, obeying the speed. But just, ah, Lord, you're so good. Coming out, maybe you do it when you're driving, I do. Just, oh, you're so good. You're so good. Friends, do I sound weird? Maybe I do to you because you're kind of a child. You need to grow. Every one of you should have a desire. I want to grow. I'm not satisfied with my height. I want my notch on that spiritual tree to get bigger and bigger bigger. That's God's will for your life. How you doing? Where's your notch? Where's your notch? Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes?